Welcome to the Annie Centre podcast. My name is Dr. Anne Chalfont, and in this special episode, we are focusing on autism spectrum disorder because April is Autism Awareness Month. This morning, I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Andrew Whitehouse. He is considered one of the leading researchers on autism spectrum disorder or ASD in the country. But before sharing that interview, I'd like to start with this introduction. Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, is a group of neurodevelopmental disorders. What does that mean? Well, it means that they are disorders that are caused mostly by various genetic disruptions that then affect the nervous system and how the brain functions. They impact how a child develops. They usually occur in the child's first three years of life. People with ASD are all very different. However, they do show certain common characteristics, and these include difficulty with social communication and social interaction. People with ASD also display a variety of repetitive behaviours and restricted interests. As I mentioned, these behaviours are usually present before three years of age. However, for some individuals, they might become apparent during the school years or even later in their life. Some individuals with ASD might also have associated mental and physical health problems. Due to COVID-19, it's the associated mental health challenges that I want to focus on the most in this podcast. The prevalence rates of ASD are suggested to be about 1 in 70. People with ASD are among the largest group accessing support through our NDIS system or National Disability Insurance Scheme. And as I said, April is Autism Awareness Month. But this year, it's gone a little under the radar for obvious reasons with COVID-19. Now, many of you know that one of my specialist areas as a senior child clinical psychologist is ASD and associated anxiety disorders. Anxiety is much more prevalent in people with ASD than it is in the general population or in other groups of individuals with disabilities. In this global pandemic, we are all feeling anxious, whether we have ASD or not. Life is uncertain. We feel completely unraveled in many ways. Our lives have definitely changed dramatically as we all practice social distancing and our normal routines go out the window. But as I said, for people with ASD, anxiety is more prevalent. In fact, people with ASD are four times more likely to experience an anxiety disorder. So with COVID-19 and the complete upheaval of life and routines, people with ASD are likely to be suffering much more. If you think that you are finding it tough, imagine how hard it must be for someone with ASD right now. So, since it is Autism Awareness Month, and since ASD is one of my specialist areas, and since people with autism might be suffering from significant anxiety at this time, I thought this podcast should be dedicated to discussing this issue. And then who better to do that with than one of the country's leading autism researchers, Professor Andrew Whitehouse. Andrew Whitehouse is the Angela Wright Bennett Professor of Autism Research at the Telethon Kids Institute and Professor of Autism Research at the University of Western Australia. He is also Chief Research Officer of the Cooperative Research Centre for Living with Autism, also known as the Autism CRC, 
and he's adjunct professor at Curtin University and Edith Cohen University. At the Telethon Kids Institute, he leads a large team that uses a wide range of methodologies to investigate the early identification and intervention of children with autism spectrum conditions, including molecular genetics, neuroscience, endocrinology, behavioural experiments and clinical trials. Andrew has published over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles and he's attracted over $40 million in competitive research grants. He currently presents an internationally syndicated video series called 60 Second Science, where the focus is on trying to bring research to the lay community in a way that is easily digestible. And that has been viewed by over 1 million people. He is an an advisor to the state and Commonwealth governments on policies relating to children with autism spectrum conditions, and he chaired the committee that generated Australia's first national guidelines for autism spectrum assessment and diagnosis, which was a massive undertaking and a huge feat. Andrew has published one edited book with his twin brother Ben and a popular science book that examined the science behind some of the myths of pregnancy and child development called Will Mozart Make My Baby Smart? He has also been awarded Australia's most prestigious scientific award, the Eureka Prize, University of Oxford. I hold Andrew in very high regard and I'm very grateful that he gave up some of his time this morning away from managing his own young family whilst he works currently from home remotely. Professor Whitehouse, thank you for agreeing to share some insights this morning. Maybe if we start with uh, looking at the fact that, you know, we're in COVID-19 world now and people with autism spectrum disorder are prone to anxiety up to four times more likely to experience an anxiety disorder than the general population, other groups of individuals with other disabilities. So what do you think are the impacts of social distancing and isolation on people with ASD at the moment? G'day, Anne, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's a real honour to be here. Uh, It's such a good question. And look, what we know about autism is that autism isn't um, a rare condition um, um, that we used to think it was. And so Mm -hmm. um, there's a large proportion of children, adolescents and adults um, who are uh, on the autism spectrum, and it's so important that we nurture people who are vulnerable during this time. Um, and you're absolutely right that there are lots of challenges that can come up um, along with social isolation, and that's um, probably even more heightened for people who are, are more susceptible to anxiety, like um, children, adolescents, and adults on the spectrum. And for, for, for me, um, in, in in clinical practice and and some of the the the, the research that I've seen is mm-hmm. is a lot of the challenges is around the disruption to routines, mm-hmm. and um, all of us uh, uh, find. Um, some sense in routine uh, in our lives, and we um, uh, even myself, you know, that morning coffee and um, uh, and and going through yeah the morning routines in the morning. It's so important, and um, um, for other people, this is absolutely the lifeblood of what helps them make sense of the world. And there are many um, kids and adults on the spectrum where that's the, the case. And if those uh, routines are interrupted, um, which they no doubt are by a period of more restricted freedoms than we're used to, then suddenly the world doesn't make sense. Now, all of us at the moment, the world doesn't make a great deal of sense, mm. but not all of us are especially prone to, to anxiety that can really bubble out of control. And yes. so for me, that I think the greatest challenge that I see at the moment 
is not necessarily in that isolation, but it's in the disruption to routines. And so, you know, my, my recommendation to families is, is try and maintain routines as much as possible, the same mm -hmm. eating habits, the same um, um, sleep-wake patterns. But at the same time, this is such a great opportunity to build in new routines, create new routines. Yes. Um, um, and those kind of things can really help make sense of the world. I think... Um the definitely the idea of sustaining existing routines where possible rings true for me clinically I mean, I was thinking about clients that i've been seeing through telehealth in the last um couple of weeks and some of them who are now um young adults at universities and of course the universities have all gone to remote learning as well um where they're they're experiencing an exacerbation of their anxiety symptoms some of them who have ocd overlapping with autism um, or ASD and um, just, an, you know, an exponential increase in their obsessive thoughts and their compulsive behaviours to neutralise those thoughts. And some of the sessions have been spent just trying to um, bed back down again what the routines were, you know, when life was yeah. normal and trying to just replicate that as much as possible. So even if it was, um, you know, if they were going to the gym or if they were leaving home to go to uni using public transport or things like that, how we could somehow replicate some of those mm -hmm. things. So doing gym work at home, you know, even if it meant going on a drive somewhere, one of them was starting to, um, you know, learn to drive so on his P's and going for a drive instead of driving to uni, but, you know, just driving around the block a couple of times and coming back. But at least there was something in the day that reflected or represented what things used to be like. Um, so it sounds yes, like that's I, something that you would you would say is, oh, is I, I absolutely endorse that and 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 there, there are ways that we can continue those routines um you know even for me i mean i love going to a coffee shop and 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 you know it's not just about the coffee of course it's about the social experience you have exactly. along the way so our family has you know uh, found different adaptations for that but we've also established new routines and i think it's a really important thing to remember that Every new beginning come from some other beginning's end and, and um, the routines of tomorrow might actually be what we start today. And yes. so what we've done as a family uh, is create new routines around going to the beach where we can, um, of course, within the limits, yes. um, uh, going um, to um, splash around in muddy puddles because I have young kids, which yes. we absolutely love. These are things that we did um, certainly beforehand, but they're now actually embedded within our routines. Yes. And um, that gives our little kids um, some beautiful comfort. It gives us a great deal amount of fun. And all of a sudden we're in a new routine. Now, of course, not everything's as simple of that as that for everyone. Um, but when we boil it down to it, um, the beginnings that we have, uh, the, the routines that we have now had to begin somewhere. And so it is for the routines of tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. And I think that idea of, um, you know, that there may be things that we do anyway, but really, you know, bending down and cementing them in something that really becomes an actual routine and provides a flow for the day, gives certainty and calmness and the sense of sort of mental calmness and stability to people, particularly for people with autism, where we know um, with their anxiety presentation that some of the sort of causal factors is that they have this intolerance for uncertainty. And certainly in the literature, that's one of the themes that comes through very strongly. There is a lot of uncertainty, as you said, at this time, Andrew. You know, we don't even know with schools, for example, the, the messages are so mixed. Are they going back? When are they going back? How many days? Um, for many individuals on the autism spectrum who are at school and remote learning, there would be uncertainty around that for them. And, and, and that would, I think, exacerbate symptoms and 
uh, create difficulty. So yeah, the, the idea of sticking to routine sounds um, very valuable, I think, for families at this time. What yeah, about... Absolutely. And look, where possible also, um, um, parents um, and, and carers have a, <clears throat> an amazing opportunity to help also help support the understanding mm. of this uncertain world that we're in. Mm. You're absolutely right. We, we all have a great deal of uncertainty about what's around at the moment. But parents and carers can uh, establish themselves as the source of truth. And that's really important mm. during this time. And you know how your child um, best learns, you know how your be child best understands. And once you establish yourself as that source of truth and, and then, you know, help them through role-playing, through drawing, through other ways of expression to understand what's going on, um, that, that, that's, that's a beautiful step towards um, understanding first. Yeah. I think that's a great idea, the, the idea of trying to find concrete ways to help them comprehend um, the significance of what's happening because that is always the first step, isn't it, to anything? If you don't understand yeah. it, you can be put, you can push against it, as well. Yes. Um, what I about agree. early intervention at this time? How do you think that would be playing out for people? I'm just thinking of yeah, recommendations it's, it's, like 20 hours minimum of therapy a week, and the, the nature of early intervention being so hands-on, you know, bubble play and sensory social routines and and those sorts of things. It's it's a <clears throat> it's such a thorny question and 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 it's a thorny issue because um, uh, obviously the hands on cannot happen mm. at this time um, and there is no doubt that um, face to face uh, intervention is definitely ideal. Um, what do we do then for the families at the moment mm. um, who um, feel like their child is growing up and yes. missing out on opportunities? Yes. I think the first thing that I would say to those families is number one. Um, there is never one shot at helping and supporting your child's development. Mm. There's just not one shot. There are multiple shots across the lifespan. And so if you're worried about um, uh, perhaps missing out on opportunities right now, I'd urge you to um, push that out of your mind because there really is no evidence that there is one shot. There are multiple shots across the lifetime in which we can support the development of your beautiful child. Mm. Um, the the other opportunities that we have though is to see well what can we do and how how can we um, best support families during this time and mm. given how we don't um, know how it's playing out certainly there's telehealth and telemedicine mm. um, and there are definite advantages for this um, uh, for for starters we are finally giving telehealth and telemedicine. Um, the credit that it deserves. Mm. Um, certainly face-to-face -face is great, but telehealth is certainly far better than nothing. Yep, and um, finally, we're all looking at this in ways that we can innovate around this to help families um, during this time. Mm. Um, te telehealth is not good for everyone, certainly um, particularly vulnerable families or families without an internet connection. You know, it's not, it's not great. Um, um, but but there, are certainly lot, there are certainly lots of evidence that telehealth around early intervention can provide great um, a developmental support. The, 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 the final thing I'd probably say is that mm. we're actually finding in our own clinical practice that, um, that, that, that telehealth can actually um, help move um, um, children and, and parents uh, um, further along the developmental pathway um, in ways that face-to-face -face couldn't, mm. where parents um, uh, are forced to take a bit of a different role because um, right. they're not, not sitting in the clinic with um, the therapist or the clinician. Yes. Um, they're all of a sudden the clinician being yes. advised externally. Yeah, and there can be a huge amount more learning and quicker that can happen. We certainly yes. found that. Um, I think that's such an interesting point. 
And, mm. and I think yeah, that, that's the idea of parents, uh, you know, parents becoming the therapist for their child in a way is one of the, uh, you know, one of the aspects that some of the really great early intervention models, I'm thinking of the early start Denver model, for example, where they really promote um, parents taking on a, a chunk of that therapeutic intervention with the child. And so there's opportunity maybe with telehealth, as you're alluding to, for more parent training, um, you know, using those sessions to train up parents to, to work then with their kids rather than, as you said, the, the parent bringing them along to the clinic, dropping them there or sitting in and not having a more active role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 I know you agree with me with what I'm about to say. That the 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 challenge that we have is um, how can we make telehealth support families to help nurture their child's development, which they're doing yes. every day, um, just in a more structured therapeutic way, while also helping parents um, be parents and yes. and not therapists. And that's the the ongoing tension that all of us um, experience that. We want um, children and families um, to also have that beautiful child and family experience um, yes. that they have, while also you know having this additional um, um, duty along with it. And that's a tension that and a challenge that will be ongoing forever. Yes, yeah, absolutely, that's right. Regardless of the situation now, do you think, Andrew, that there's any benefits? to social isolation at the moment for people with ASD? I mean, I suppose I'm coming from that, that community view that I think is still somewhat out there that people with ASD just kind of want to be left alone. They want to be on their own. They're in their own world. So that must mean that they don't want to socialise. Um, I mean, I've got some clients I can think of who are finding a benefit of remote learning where they've got less sensory input of the other kids, the noise at school, the visual overstimulation and those aspects being reduced for them um, and finding benefit to learning in that way. But I don't know even for them that I would argue socially that they're enjoying um, being disconnected from people in this way. What, what would you say? Yeah, I, I look, I sort of uh, um, very much agree with what you're saying. I, I think there are islets of benefits here and there that sensory one that you mentioned is one i hadn't thought of and i think that's a really good point and i can see certainly many kids benefiting from a different learning environment and what a great insight that we've got now um, about how kids can learn mm. in different environments Absolutely. which we already knew but yeah. here it is in it's practice really brought it to the fore. Um, yeah. but certainly I, I don't see net benefit when weighed against the risks also the the, the, the drawbacks um, for any um, person, I think that um, you know the notion of um, somebody on the spectrum um, never wanting to interact with mm. anyone or, or, or be out in the broader world um, is um, uh, not just a furphy, but it was never never a reality, and, yes. and I've never seen any individual like that. And um, just oh, as yeah. our freedoms are restricted, their freedoms are restricted in terms of whereas my my freedom of going to the coffee shop might be restricted. Um, their freedoms to do other things, which are really important to them, are restricted. And so um, uh, I, I haven't seen a net benefit to it at all, but certainly I completely agree. There are little bits of um, uh, benefits here and there that we can learn from. What a great opportunity to learn and to push forward the case to schools, um, to other um, uh, organisations that look at the benefits that can be brought through other environments and, and, and other ways of being, yeah. 
And I think that comes back to your point earlier about, you know, sort of new beginnings and new routines. Maybe there's new pathways for education moving forward in terms of additional flexibility for some of these kids um, with different ways of learning um, so that it doesn't always have to be uh, classroom based with, you know, 30 other kids around them and other, the other challenges that that involves, but a balance perhaps between the possibility to learn ind independently, but still have the opportunity to practice um, social interaction, which I yeah. think is, is so, you know, what, as you said, I, I've, I've never had a client in my, you know, 20 something years of, of practice either who, who's told me that they really don't want to be, um, with other people it's that they don't know how to be um, and the difference between yeah. not wanting and not knowing is is so huge um, and yeah I, I would agree completely that that certainly has been my experience with my own uh, yeah I mean uh, and and I think just to probably finish that that point is mm. really that you know every every crisis comes with many opportunities mm. and and I think people like yourself and myself and families what our what our, a great job, what a big job right now it is for us is to understand what have we learned from this not necessarily mm. you know people people like you and me aren't immunologists or, or virologists yes. um, but what what have we learned in our own sphere about how we live our own lives mm. how our how the families that we see live their lives and what how can we translate that to a better new world um, and that's a great challenge that actually um, keeps me up at night with excitement so it's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised that you would say that, Andrew, but I, I relate completely to it as well. Um, just moving a bit more broadly now, because it is Autism Awareness Month and, and, and thinking about some of the people that may listen to this um, episode, what do you think at the moment are some of the hottest, you would have your finger on the pulse more than anyone I know, um, what are some of the hottest topics in ASD research at the moment? Yeah, this is a great question, and and I and I love it because it gets me to thinking big. I I um I am a hundred percent confident that the hottest topics in autism research are about what can we do to change um the the lives of of kids to grow up into happy and healthy adults who who can make choices for themselves. Mm. And look, I, I got into the research field um, uh, same as you about twenty years ago, mm. and 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 um, we were focused on causes. We were find, trying to find the gene and then the sets of genes mm. that cause the brain to develop a little bit differently and 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 have um, um, and children um, display the behaviours that we diagnose as autism. Um, we've really evolved in the sense that that is really scientifically interesting and we understand more about biology and hopefully we can understand more about how to help people through that biology. Mm -hmm. But really there's been a great shift to um, how do we give families and children um, um, autonomy over their own lives? Mm -hmm. And that starts right from day dot, that starts from how do we find the most effective intervention mm -hmm. that for a particular child or adolescents in front of us. At the moment, we know broadly that there are interventions that are effective. Mm. Clinicians on an individual level level do fab fabulously matching interventions to, to kids, but yes. we don't do it in a systematic way with much evidence behind it. Mm. So it starts there. But then it's about how do we make the most out of edu education years? We've got um, uh, uh, a huge budget for teachers, and that, that's going to be in our, um, um, our state budgets forever. Um, mm. How do we take advantage of that wonderful um, um, uh, boon to um, help 
uh, kids because th that money will be there forever. So how can we help teachers? How can we help kids to work together to create better outcomes? Mm. And then it's employment. It's about housing. It's about autonomous living. It's about financial security. These are the things that create happy and healthy adults. Yes. Um, not necessarily understanding the biological pathways that lead to autism. And those to me, and I think to the broader community, is the excitement of where we're at at the moment. That, that, that we've moved on a little bit from um, trying to understand the biology to understanding how do we create happy and healthy lives. Which I think is, you know, so, so important because ultimately it's about helping people, you know, achieve their own individual potential and, and this idea of independence. And, and when you live independently feeling, you know, at whatever level or stage that is that you've got control over yourself, you're more confident, you feel more self-actualized, um, you know, as a person. Thinking back over the years, at, for example, you know, a lot of the research conferences like... Um, the International Meeting for Autism Research or IMFAR and, and whether it seemed to be very heavy with this idea of causation and, and genetics and, and the push for biological understanding of cause. Do you see that that shifted as well in those settings? Oh, most definitely. And, and um, it's been driven by, number one, autistic adults um, uh, having a strong voice um, and that's, you know, organising and having a strong voice is, is super important. We see it with every aspect of our, mm. our society. That's, that's what creates change. But then it, it, it took uh, a few brave um, uh, service providers and um, researchers to lead that charge then. And um, they've led the way and it's created significant change. Um, and you know what the greatest uh, change has been is biologists interacting with kids and adults on the spectrum. Yes, that, yeah, to see the, the, the biggest thing that can actually create change. Yeah, <laughs> so interesting. Um, I know it's how novel. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Why, when, why, yeah. Why didn't we think of that sooner? Um, yeah. Now, the issue of boys versus girls and detection of ASD. It, 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 it's certainly you know. Clinically, I think, you know, in the training courses that I run or the people that I supervise or work with, it's still a very hot topic for them, you know, and um, where do you think we're at with understanding that? Yeah, look, there's definitely, I mean, when you and I started out, it would have been four or five boys to every um, one female mm. that was um, diagnosed. We now certainly know that that ratio isn't as great and it's more like two boys to every one female. And okay. there, are, there are two sort of theories around that. One is um, a biological theory, um, and again, very nerdy, but quite interesting. And it's the idea that actually um, boys um, uh, are genetically a little bit more fragile. I love this one because uh -huh. males finally get it. Usually yes. it's females that get it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but boys are more genetically fragile. So we actually require fewer genetic differences for the brain to develop a little bit differently compared to females. Females might require uh, higher, uh, okay. uh, more um, genetic differences. And th that's called the female protective effect. And that's one theory. Um, and certainly there's some evidence behind that. But the, the, the definitely there are sociological explanations that our diagnostic tests mm. um, uh, and our diagnostic training is really geared towards quite a classical presentation mm. of a male with autism a little yes. boy with autism and I think there's 
decent evidence behind that as well. Uh -huh. um, but certainly um, where we're at at the moment, we do know that um, uh, the four to one ratio of boys to girls is actually more like two to one. And um, that's certainly when you look, when you broaden out your horizons from how you were trained, you can start to see it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on that point, I suppose, with diagnostic testing, how do you think, you know, the, obviously the gold standard tools, you know, are still, I think predominantly the AIDOS is still the, the go-to, whether it's for research or clinically, it certainly is the one that people seem to know the most about, um, whether, you know, rightly or wrongly. And I think it probably is still a very thorough assessment tool. What, how do you think that goes now? And what's the research around how good that is at detecting girls then with yeah, ASD. It's interesting that, that, that there was a, a scientific paper out just this week, actually, mm -hmm. that was showing that that really looked at um, um, the first first study was sort of thousands of females um, yes. with the ADOS and the ADIR, uh -huh. which is sort of a, a diagnostic interview um, yep. with parents and and showing that these instruments actually didn't have systematic bias towards identifying males versus females yes. to any great degree. Certainly mm -hmm. there was a little bit of bias and I mm -hmm. think that's um, uh, that, that's inarguable, but mm -hmm. to, to, to any great degree. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's um, a huge case at this stage to change our diagnostic mm -hmm. instruments. Um, and certainly the scientific paper was quite clear in saying that there's no need for sort of what 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 we in clinical land say sex specific mm. norms. So um, scoring the test according differently for males versus females. Yes. Um, so I think at the moment the tests are okay. Um, but as you and I know, and that the 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 the, uh, the diagnostic tests are, are tools that can inform clinical judgment, yes. and it's how we train our clinicians. Um, to override existing biases that we all have as humans and clinicians, yes. that's, I think, where the change needs to happen. And so on that point, broadening out with that point, the national guidelines for assessment and diagnosis, which you chaired, the, the sort of that, that whole project, which was mammoth, and I still um, reel at the thought of how hard that must have been to, to manage. It was such a huge <laughs> task and, and have such admiration for you, for the way you went about that and for how thorough um, a job that was with you and the team um, preparing all of that. Where do you think we're at now? This idea that I think where we were was at a st with assessment and diagnosis was with clinicians with yeah probably preconceived or individual biases that classic ASD um, you know image particularly with boys in mind and 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 you know I remember running training courses with people sitting in the audience saying look you know I can tell in five seconds if someone's got autism or not it's just a matter of this and that and and and, and the lack of attention to differential diagnosis and I remember sitting in um, one of the forums when these guidelines were being uh, you know prepared and listening to that come through as a theme time and time again the issue of being able to you know we could all be good at detecting ASD but if we're not equally competent at being able to determine what's the difference between autism and ADHD or autism and global delay or autism and a language impairment um, then you know we're not so competent after all so moving from that to, to now the introduction of these guidelines and trying to you know, attenuate some of these preconceived ideas and, and give people a more uniform approach to assessment. Where do you think, Andrew, we're at now a couple of years on or a year and a half or so on from, from the oh, introduction of them? It's such an interesting um, point. And that point you raised about I can tell in five minutes, um, if for me, that, that, that argument um, that people are making doesn't hold water for one, one main reason is that um, 
if we look at analogies, and this is a clunky analogy, but hopefully it will illustrate mm. the point that with diabetes, with type two diabetes as an example, um, well, absolutely. Um, if some an individual walk, walks into a clinical room, there is we can tell with some um, understanding that maybe somebody has type two diabetes because of various symptoms. Does that mean that we diagnose based on that? No, we do absolutely rigorous um, um, health and medical um, testing. Um, so uh, by saying that we understand in five minutes, um, it, we're holding autism to poorer health and medical standards than we would accept for anywhere else. Mm. And that for me is not just doing our families a disservice, our professional lives a disservice, it's unethical. And we all know that, um, deep down, we all know that. And mm. um, the reason that we don't do it, don't change is because it's bloody hard mm. and, 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 and it is hard. <laughs> That's and, right. And at, 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 Having gone through the guideline process, um, um, I'm, I'm quite convinced I'm going to die five years younger now. But, but, but um, <laughs> I hope you don't, because um, we have more was, to learn from you. But I can <laughs> see why you would think that, because it was. Huge. I'm not too sure. About that. It, it was a great process to understand that that because this is the way we've been doing it, um, where clinicians have their own ways of doing it. We, we, we there's a, there's there's professional inertia. In that mm. and so we're not willing to change but this is about doing what's right um certainly i don't doubt the clinicians have very good eyes for understanding mm. whether somebody is on the spectrum or not um but it's it's those other reasons that you mentioned it's about understanding um uh, uh firstly you know doing our ethical duty to families um mm. and and uh you know we do do no harm um do our best all of those things so we must do that but secondly it is about that um, without a proper assessment, we cannot guide our clinical management. And if we identify comorbid ADHD or um, anxiety issues or, you know what, uh, autism um, symptoms early in life are often present in kids with severe neglect, severe anxiety, Absolutely. all sorts of things. We get it wrong. And so it's not just about the um, uh, ethical standards of, of, of keeping our practice to the same ethical standards of all areas of health and medical practice um, it's about you know what sometimes we get it wrong and it's really important that we understand our own frailties um, where, where we're at with that is that the um, um, the Department of Social Services in in um, the federal government mm -hmm. is, is taking um, uh, the bit between their teeth and they're really keen to um, create a, a rollout procedure for that across Australia Fantastic. what that looks like at this time is very unclear uh -huh. um, but certainly um, uh, prior to COVID, they, they saw this as one of their essential activities and they're, they're, they're planning that right now. And that will be done in conjunction with professional bodies and professional organisations because um, there, there are certain ways that things can be rolled out professionally. One is obviously the mandated by the federal government. I yes. don't necessarily think that's how you get professional buy-in, but it's one way uh -huh. to do it swiftly. Uh -huh. But I do think the way to buy get professional buy-in buy is by um, working with the individuals and, and the organisations that will use it. And that, for me, is the professional peak bodies like mm. um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the psychological societies as well as um, um, paediatricians and speeches and others. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so watch that space and, and we'll see more on that by the mm. sounds of it soon, which sounds exciting and, and good because I think one thing is the guidelines and then the other is the implementation of them and the, the rigour around how that's, how that's being managed and, and training people really continuing to train them and, and broadening their perspectives and views, as you've said, on, you know, or, or the, moving from that classical view to something that is broader and, and encapsulates more, um, particularly when we do see that certain kids, you know, girls, for example, presenting differently and understanding that better. 
Um, That's right. With Autism Awareness Month, and obviously you being really, you know, a, a, a leader in, in this field, if not one of the, the greatest leaders in this field with research, Andrew, what do you want people to know about your work? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I, I guess um, what I'd love people to know about our work from a philosophical and principle level is that um, is that we put very much that the, the, the person on the autism spectrum at the centre of everything. And that drives all of the research that we do. About six or seven years ago, we made a really hard turn away from genetics, mm-hmm. um, away from biology to start understanding how we can actually reinvent our clinical services, um, particularly in the young age group, which is um, my predominant interest. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sorry, my pr- predominant expertise, if I have any. I'm certainly interested in everything, but but um, um, the, the um, how can we reinvent those clinical pathways to work better for families and clinicians? Um, the clinical pathway that we've been working under, where there are um, children are diagnosed typically between... I don't know, two and six years of age. I think we have about 60, 70% of kids diagnosed at that age. Yes. Um, and then intervention starts there, um, quite blunt intervention because it's often not matched to the, the strengths and, um, and challenges of that individual. Mm. I, I don't think it's fit for purpose. I think it's been around since the 70s and we know so much more now. So mm-hmm. we're, we're really trying to improve two aspects. Number one is... Um, working with little infants and actually babies um, who um, have a um, family history of autism. So we've developed an intervention um, for, would you believe it, and this sounds a bit wacky, but newborns who have a family history of autism. Okay. Um, and, and yes, it's a little bit wacky, but but we thought, well, you know, if not us, then who? And, and also it's great fun. Any day you work with a little baby and you get to yes. hand it back. Um, yes, it's that's right. So, um, and so what does that yeah. involve? What does it look like? Oh, it's, 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 uh, originally, you know, and a lot of it, you could probably draw back to attachment literature, mm-hmm. but it's really quite different to attachment. What we're trying to help families do. So we have an antenatal session. So mm-hmm. families are given, um, a, a workshop about a three hour workshop mm-hmm. about, you know, all of the wonderful things that newborn babies can do. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the luxury, um, or I have the luxury of understanding how much babies can do. Cause I get to look at babies all day in a professional yes. capacity yes. rather than having to feed them and change them. Yeah. Um, certainly done a bit of that in my time as well, but uh, in a professional capacity. And and babies do so much. Yes. They're desperate to communicate you from the time with you from the time they come out of the womb. And so what we're seeking to do is to really help families understand how babies are communicating with them from the very first moment they come out of the womb um, and how parents can best communicate back with them to help support that to and fro interaction that we know supports brain development mm-hmm. um so it's a it's a program that starts in the first antenatal oh sorry there's a the first session is in the antenatal periods so of just mm-hmm. a, a simple workshop and it's quite fun um and then we've got um, a whole lot of sessions maybe 10 sessions up until six months and it's really based around using video feedback to help families understand what their baby's doing and and how much they can do it and how mm-hmm. beautiful and unique their baby mm. is there is mm. no bub like that bub in the world and how special is that mm. so, so we're doing that and then also infant intervention so really working with a lot of 12 year 12 month olds um to how we can um, help support them prior to a diagnosis there's mm-hmm. no reason that we must start uh, we have to start at the point of diagnosis why can't we start earlier Absolutely. there's nothing saying saying that we can't 
Um, and, and so let's do that. And the second thing is really, how can we actually start to provide families a roadmap from the point of diagnosis? So at the point of diagnosis, I'd love to leave, you know, once I drop off this mortal coil, uh, if, if um, um, I could say um, that actually maybe some of my work helped provide a roadmap for families at the point of diagnosis, I'd love that. And, and, and that means that, okay, we have a child who's diagnosed with autism. They have non, uh, that they have um, uh, an intellectual disability. They're not saying a huge amount of words. They're three years of age. Mm. Their fam there's a two, they're a two-parent household. Based on all the evidence, what intervention um, methodology do we mm. think is best mm. for that person and will give the best bang for their buck? At the moment, clinicians, individual clinicians know this, but we don't mm. do it in a systematic way. And I'd yeah. love, I'd love, love, love to do that. Yes, that sounds, that, that, I mean, that sounds phenomenal and I think so needed now really at, at this point in time. And, and the idea of, um, I, I love what you're describing around the, the sort of attachment-based, you know, video at the antenatal period for families. And I could, I could see utility for, uh, for, for all families really with that, not just families where there's some sort of query of vulnerability for ASD. I mean, like I can yes. have so many clients who, you know, of mine who don't have a, an ASD where the parents would really have benefited from that early, um, you know, education around that early period and, and looking at, at exactly as you're saying, babies as communicators and, and bids for communication and understanding how to reciprocate and, and that. You're absolutely right. And, and, and look, we, we actually have a large grant that's going to trial this, um, obviously a very cut down version for embedding within maternal and child health nurse visits, mm, even fantastic. just 15 minutes tacked onto the end of, yeah, and, and we think it's got great thing and, and, and it, it may or may not provide benefits to the child, um, but my bet is that it's almost um, um, positive that it will provide benefits to families. I mean, just myself, I, I, I think um, um, this, this kind of research that we're doing has come after my kids um, are out of that newborn phase, thank yes. God. Um, um, but, um, uh, and um, I, I do wish that I looked at those, those, those ears with fresher eyes where I could sort of say, oh my gosh, so when they're doing that, that they're trying to sort of um, look at me and look for me to do something funny yeah. or, or to do something again. Or, um, yeah. and, and you know what, it, it, it helps you understand how precious and, and beautiful and unique your child is. And um, that's a gift if we can learn that really early on. I think so. And I think it would, it would help. I can see benefits of it for, you know, children where there may be some um, risk in terms of neglectful parenting potentially and, and just the benefit of that for parents to, to have that opportunity at, at, at child, you know, check-in and visits to see their child in, in a new way and, and in, in fresh eyes and, and in a more positive way and to see the benefits yeah. of those interactions as well. Um, and and the, the the challenge, Anne, is that that of course um, um, we there is a lot of uh, our systems are uh, uh, under under inertia because change is so hard, mm -hmm. um, and and we all know how change hard is uh, hard change is, and yes. so um, a, a lot of what I see is my. Um, job, whether you know people want it or not, and often yes. they don't, but um, um, <laughs> is is to identify or at least try and um, pro provide an alternate proposal of what reality yes. could be. Yes. And and reality could be that we um, have those first six, 12, 18 months, really the whole of childhood, as the most special um, um, time to help 
children understand who they want to be. Mm. Um, and for me, that starts right from the womb um, and certainly from when the baby comes out. And, and there is no reason why our clinical services, state or, you know, government or private, can't make that change. It's only really due to the will. And, and it's up to people like myself um, to provide the evidence that will help that will mm. along. And I think that that's that's fantastic, and and I look forward as a, both a parent and a clinician to to seeing those kind of changes um, yeah. come about over time. Just to finish off with Andrew, what what do you think more broadly you would like the community to be aware of this autism month because it has gone under the radar, I think a little bit, um, understandably so with COVID nineteen and all all of the other things that have changed in our lives so drastically. What would you like the community to know at this point or, or to be more aware of around ASD? Oh, that's a really great question. And, and um, well, I'd love to have everyone sort of um, sat down in a lecture theatre and sort of clockwork orange style with their uh, <laughs> eyelids open watching uh, something. Look, I, I think more broadly is, is, is that um, autism is just one dimension of humanity. And aren't we lucky? And, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're in a moment in time right at the moment where we're seeing the very best and, and you know, some of the le less appealing aspects of mm. humanity. Mm. What we can concentrate on is the very best. I mean, the way that Australia has been managing um, this has shown um, a sense of community that I think that certainly in Australia, we, not, we weren't too sure whether we had, you know. I'm, I think we weren't too sure whether we had such a great sense of community, mm. but this has really shown it. And um, autism is just one extension of that. Mm. There are certainly many kids, adolescents and adults out there with great challenges. There's mm. no doubt about that. And um, they should never be underplayed. Intellectual disability, language um, mm. disorders, these aren't great these aren't choices that people can have and and um, they do provide roadblocks to their lives and it's up to all of us to actually help with those roadblocks um to not not, not just see them um but also to do what we can and so um when we talk about autism we talk about an extension of humanity and mm. what's our role well our role is to try and um extend all of humanity to these individuals. And that means through education, through employment, um, through providing the autonomy over their own lives that we wish for our own lives and our mm. own kids' lives. Mm. Um, and uh, that's such a great challenge, um, both in the sense that it's huge, but it's also just such a passion that we can all keep alive. So I, I guess that's probably the one main thing is that um, we are actually all in this together because we are all part of the same community. Mm, absolutely. Andrew, thank you so much for your time, for um, those listening and, and for your insights and for all of the work that you do. As I said at the start, I am a great admirer of your work and your research. And I think uh, this morning's chat hopefully has, uh, has just brought to light, you know, how innovative that is, how, how, how helpful of the community more broadly it is um, and, and what opportunities there are, as you said, not to, not to be inert and to stick with old ways, but to try and innovate and to push forward with positivity um, and, and the idea of, you know, seeking people's potential and working towards independence. They're things that have really come through to me from speaking with you um, this morning, which I hope will be beneficial. And I'm sure will be beneficial for people listening. So I really value your time and I'm very grateful um, for you Gosh. speaking with me this morning. 
Oh gosh, and thank you so much. And and just I'll finish with this: that my um, wife let me know the other day that um, my optimism and pathological optimism was endearing when we dated, but it's awful when you're married. So I hope ah. it didn't come across like that. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Professor Andrew Whitehouse. Please leave comments and a rating at Apple Podcasts. Our mission in producing this podcast is always helping families thrive. And to keep things practical, I'm going to post some links to good resources on autism and COVID-19 in the show notes. I'll also include a link to Professor Whitehouse's 60 Second Science video series, which I highly recommend you check out. I wish you all the best, stay safe and take care. The Annie Centre podcast was brought to you by Annie Centre Proprietary Limited. Please visit anniecentre.com and subscribe to receive the latest updates and digital downloads from Dr. Anne Shalfant. 